Hey, Rose, do you ever call up Royally Obsessed on Alexa? It's one of the easiest ways to listen to the pod. You can hear our latest episode every week there, thanks to Amazon Music, which has a full catalog of podcasts, including Royally Obsessed. All you have to do is say, Alexa, play Royally Obsessed on Amazon Music. Oh, no, mine is listening to me say that right at this moment. <laughs> a royal reminder, new episodes drop every Thursday. Tune in on Amazon Music. Now on to the show. Please rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Stand by! Three cheers for Her Majesty the Queen! Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Caitlin Menza. And I'm Lisa Ryan. And it's time for a very special episode of the podcast. Yay! Yeah. Um, so we have two incredibly special guests this week. Um People we were honestly so thrilled about. We're freaking out. We're freaking out. Like, we have no chill. We're not being cool about this. We are starstruck yeah. freaking out. We just want to get right to it. Yeah, we're just over the moon. Over the moon. Um, so we're not going to share them with you yet. Don't get, it's not Meghan Markle and Kate Middleton. Not this week. Not yet. Not yet. We're working on it. But almost there. Does anyone know how to reach them? Yes. <laughs> we are talking to two guests who have met the royals. So yes. that's that's special in to itself. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us the royal rating of a five-star review. You know, if you're happy with it. Yeah. And if you're not, just don't say anything. Yeah, please don't. Um, (laughs) And so uh, on this week's episode, we were so excited to get copies of 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown, um, who is this prolific British journalist and uh, satirist. But he has turned his attentions to Princess Margaret because he agrees with us that she's one of the most fascinating people to ever exist. Truly. So la-di-da, we have Craig Brown later this episode. Uh, We're so excited to talk to him. And we're looking at the cover of the book right now. And it's just this shot of Princess Margaret with her like glamorous sunglasses. And I would say rhinestones, but they're probably diamonds. Probably. Diamond encrusted sunglasses and this gorgeous hat and her pearls. And oh my gosh, this book is amazing. It's a very chic book cover for you to take a photo of and put on Instagram at the beach. But it's also a fantastic read. So we have Craig coming up. But first, we have someone so thrilling that Lisa cannot control herself. I know. So one thing that's really nice about uh, our career is that as writers, we get to interview famous people or people that we respect quite often. And so Caitlin and I have kind of gotten used to, um, if we're like freaking out inside, at least pretending to be cool. Yes. But with Lainey Louie, I cannot pretend. I am so (laughs) excited. She is the genius behind LaineyGossip.com, which is the best gossip and also like anthropology website in my opinion because she doesn't just look at gossip she sees everything from like this anthropological standpoint it's like the psychology behind celebrity gossip and it's so amazing she knows everything and I don't know I worship her no big deal (laughs) and she also uh is on the talk show uh the social Okay. So. Well, try to hold it together, Lisa, and prepare yourselves because here we have Lainey Louie calling us from Toronto. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to get right into the Royals. Yes. So how did you first get interested in the Royals? I Probably Princess Diana. Yeah. Like, you guys don't look like you would be of Diana age. Um, but I 100% grew up with the fairy tale, the fairy tale wedding, the fairy tale wedding dress, um, 
watching and reading about her trials and tribulations and then obviously the tragic accident in Paris. So um, my introduction to royal obsession was definitely Princess Diana. Okay, I could see that. First of all, I'd like to thank you for that compliment. We'll take it. <laughs> right. um, Anytime yes. someone says we look young, we're like, thank you. Yeah, well, we're okay with that. Um, I understand that. Um, but can you tell us a bit about writing about them? Are there challenges to covering them? Not really. I don't think there are different challenges um, in writing about the royals as in comparison to celebrities. You always want to make it a fun story. Like, anytime you write about anyone, it's storytelling. So your approach isn't different. The only thing that's maybe um, a different um, skill set in terms of a knowledge set is I know Celebrities 101 backwards forwards. I'm not like a royal scholar. I can't tell you who the Earl of the Eighth Duke of the Kingdom of the whatever is. And so sometimes I find that when you're writing about royals, there are uppity-ass, pearl-clutchy royal people who are like, well, you didn't say this properly about the, I don't know, Viscount of Gloucester's 18th wife and plot of land on the estate of something, I'm sure. Whatever. So I, right. that might be the only thing, but other than that, no, there's really no chat, like no difference in it. Okay. That well. makes me feel better because that is the exact <laughs> same thing that we get from people who are like, you are very uninformed. I'm yes. like, mm. we do our best. We're just fans. We're not scholars. I think the point, though, in having a royal conversation is to apply our real world knowledge and understanding and behavior to royal behavior. Yes, we don't have titles and sure, we're not going to be living in a castle one day, but the storytelling around them, the fact that they have arguments among themselves, the fact that they fall in love, the fact that they have family drama, all that is universally, um, understandable without a royal title so i don't know like i don't really give a shit about like how many earls there have been you know what i mean (laughs) i do i know exactly what you mean so we've been reading you for years and years and i know that you have been covering will and kate from like when they started and when people started noticing that they were a thing so what was it like covering them back when kate was cruelly known as weighty katie and you know before the engagement like how was that different from how it is now? Well, in the sense of um, Will and Kate compared to Meghan and Harry, the Will and Kate, the Will and Kate um, story is kind of like a young adult romance novel. I, I read a lot of these. I love young adult romance, the college romance. Um, and it, it plays out exactly the same way, right? A prince goes to college and a commoner girl gets to know him. She's really pretty and um, she comes from a really good family, but she's just not sure if she's gonna be right for that kind of life and they break up and then they get back together and the whole world is watching. I mean, it's totally scripted from a romance novel. And I think that's how we approached it. Everybody did, not just me. I think that was what was the hook for the one of, you know, in modern times with social media 
and with everybody in community on the internet able to share our ideas and feelings about this, that's really what the draw of it was. As opposed to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, they were fully fledged adults. Like, you know, we couldn't walk through that young adult time with them. It's still a romance novel, no doubt. But their genres of romance are a little bit different. They're on different shelves. Yeah, definitely. And you have noted in more recent stories that you think that Harry and Meghan, or rather that William and Kate are a little boring by comparison. But I love your old posts where you have at the bottom all those photos of them like wasted and, you know, in limos and roller skating, roller skating. Were there is there a specific moment from those like glory years that sticks out to you? Okay, my favorite detail of the old Will and Kate era is that she used to smoke. (laughs) I don't think I knew that, actually. Well, that's what I'm here for. That's what I love (laughs) is that, listen, if you've ever spent any time in England, um, in London, the young people, especially the posh young people, they're always like rolling around with a cigarette hanging out of their mouths. And she is of that set, too. She used to smoke. And I believe she was still smoking after the engagement. Um, And there there are like one or two pictures of her with a cigarette pack in her bag or falling out of her bag or holding onto a cigarette pack. And they're rare. You can't you have to really go deep into Google Images to find these now. But that is my favorite detail because it gives us a glimpse into who she used to be. Um, Since she's been royalized, of course, she's the best at following protocol. She's so proper. She's so mannered. She knows she has an image to uphold. But back then, she was a regular college girl drinking beers and having smokes on a Friday, Saturday night. (laughs) Yeah, she had a vice. It's, It's unbelievable to me now to imagine that she had a vice of any kind. And so you covered both royal weddings, uh, both of the recent ones, right? Like you were in England for Will and Kate. What was that like? It was a spectacle, like probably one of the highlights of my career because um, that kind of spectacle that the British royal family is able and capable of putting on is second to none. Um, the military precision, the timing, the pomp, and um, to see a real princess in a white dress drive by on a carriage pulled by horses, it was like it was bananas. Yeah, that's amazing. So how did that compare then to Harry and Meghan's? Well, let's go macro first. Um, Of course, because Prince William is going to be the king of England one day, they had to have the wedding in London proper, the capital. So it was a huge scale wedding, whereas Meghan and Harry's wedding felt really intimate. Windsor is a small town. Like the main strip, which is called the High Street, is just two lanes. So it really is like driving along a main street. And of course, you have like a castle there. But (laughs) the castle (laughs) is an old castle. Like you can feel the thousands or hundreds of years of history there. So the morning of the wedding, I was inside the castle grounds touring the chapel that was breathtaking and incredible because i toured the chapel from 9 to 9 20 or so and then the first guests arrived at 9 45 or so so i was right there and i walked the aisle that Meghan markle walked and um 
Windsor Castle is so beautiful and St. George's Chapel is so beautiful. You really get a sense of the old architecture. I mean, this is something that's been, I mean, the castle's been around since, what, the 1400s or something? I don't know, whatever. Some Earl of whatever person <laughs> correct me again. But the castle's been around forever. You really get a sense of the history. It was decorated so beautifully, but not ostentatiously. Um, and I had to take a moment and look around and be like, holy shit, I'm really here. I, I can't believe it. And then after that, I walked out of the Henry VIII gates. And these are like super old fashioned gates too. I mean, when you watch, when you watch like medieval movies, these are kind of like gates that you see. And then I walked along the high street up into a balcony. And then uh, that is where I was when they rode by on their carriage. Now, the difference is, is that it's a small town. So people were way closer and you, you felt that when they smiled at you, they were really looking into your eyes. I thought Harry was actually waving at me and saying, He was. Hey, he baby, was. thanks for coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Megan could have been because you've interviewed her before several times on East Hawk, right? I've interviewed her once and I've oh. been at a group dinner with her. Yeah. Before. Okay. Oh. A gr- that might be better, actually. Yeah. I feel like... <laughs> Seeing her with her red wine, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, we have to ask, what was she like? She was really, really nice. It was, like I said, it was a big group dinner organized by um, another friend. And there were eight of us there. Um, And it was one of those situations where, you know, you start the night in one seat. And then, you know, by dessert, you've moved around. So by dessert is when I ended up beside her. And we probably talked for 20 minutes or so about dogs. She's obsessed with dogs. I'm obsessed with my dogs. I have beagles. She has a beagle. So we had a beagle bonding. Um, She wasn't, you know what, the thing about her, what I really enjoy is that you have dinner with some people, and this is not a knock on those people, but you have dinner, you go out with some people, and they are automatically the center of attention. You know, they tell the funniest stories, they're the loudest, um, they're the most fun. And it's not that she doesn't have funny stories or that she's not fun. It's just that she's cool hanging back. Like, she doesn't have to be like, look at me all the time, all eyes on me. Um, And that night, she was just chill. She was in the corner, happy to be in a quiet conversation. She didn't need people looking at her. She didn't need to um, drive the conversation. I really, I really enjoyed that about her. Okay. I love that. I love that, too. (laughs) That's a great detail. And so one thing that you write about a lot is the love shield that Harry has issued for Meghan. And can you tell us a bit about why that's unique for the royals to do something like that? Well, stoicism is their strong suit, and they don't usually um, show that they're affected by things, that they're emotionally triggered. And so in November 2016, when Prince Harry released that statement saying, essentially, leave my girlfriend alone, it was a departure from standard royal behavior, where they're not supposed to show that they're upset, Um, and when they're not supposed to show emotions. He was clearly really emotional. His emotion was anger and frustration and love. He was like, I love this woman. Leave her alone. I'm here to make sure that the world knows that she's under my protection now. So step off. Like, that is, first of all, it's swoony. I get it. 
Yes. But also, it's yes. not something that you see from Prince William, for example. Like his style is a lot more, um, a lot more reserved, and he, Prince William, isn't one to let you know. Um, the gamut of all his emotions. Whereas Harry, as probably Diana foretold, is the one who wears his emotions on his sleeve. And you and you really saw that. And I think it humanized them. And it humanized Harry. So to go back to your question, what was the significance? Well, I think that move really endeared him with a lot of people in the public. People who would, been, who would have been like, I would have done the same for my partner. Or people who would have been like, I would have appreciated the same from my partner. Or I wish I had a partner like that. That too, but I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I know that that was around the time that the relationship was first revealed. And I know um, that he was actually in Toronto when news of their relationship came out. So since you live in Toronto, what was it like then in the media scene with the news of their relationship and their spottings. Yeah, and- did, like, did people in Toronto care? Were people like looking out for them or trying to find them at bars or anything? Oh, for sure. Um, people <laughs> cared. The way sometimes Toronto is, though, Toronto can sometimes be too cool for school. Like, you know, there's that sense of, oh, we're above celebrities and we're just, you know, super cool, hipstery, whatnot. And then sometimes people can be like, oh my God, Harry, where is he, Lainey? Find him for me. Um, I found it the most hilarious that there were all these fake sightings of him. So the minute that news came out, you know, you would start seeing messages on Twitter like, I'm at the mall and Prince Harry just walked into, I don't know, like the Arby's. (laughs) What? (laughs) I, I... um, I think that that was what was hysterical. And so there were so many fake sightings that it was hard to like sift through them all. Like part of part, part of me and a lot of us were like, as if he would be at the Arby's, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And of course there was like, then, you know, local reporters were all chasing the story and trying to find out where he was. Um, but I think also to go back to that two too cool for schoolness of Toronto. The upside of that for Harry and Meghan is that they were able to sort of be so undercover for so long because Toronto people were evidently so chill about not caring. So that was the upside. So yes to Toronto for, you know, making this place safe for them in the early stages of their relationship. It's funny because I'm from a suburb of Toronto and no one I'm related to has any sort of chill. So if we saw Prince Harry, we would be freaking out. But I guess that's a suburb thing. Yeah. You understand You you understand then what I mean about like Toronto proper, mm-hmm. right? It's a little bit snobby. Yes. And sometimes I feel like I'm guilty of that too. Um, but yeah, it can be a little bit snobby at times. Okay, interesting. Since you have been watching this couple since their inception, how do you feel like the the palace's handling of them differs from the handling of William and Kate? Because I feel like the rollout, they have similar like sort of official rollouts where like you go to this event, then this event, and then we'll announce your engagement. But it was obviously way shorter in the case of Harry and Meghan. What else have you noticed about the palace's approach to these relationships? I I think it's been an individualized approach. Like, you have to remember that when Kate first started dating William and even when they got engaged, she was in her 20s and she was really not prepared yet for that level of scrutiny. She didn't have the training, whereas Megan was already media trained. She was an actor. She worked in Hollywood. She's a celebrity. 
So their readiness for their respective roles was at completely different stages. Um, and so in the rollout, the difference is that they took their time with Kate. William insisted on it to fully prepare her to make sure that she felt that she was um, in a good place, that she felt that she had all had all the instruction and all the resources available to her before they really you know, got her out there. Whereas almost the minute they announced Meghan and Harry's like engagement, she was joining him on official visits, doing walkabouts, meeting people, going to visit charities, handing out awards, even before, you know, she was officially the Duchess of Sussex. So um, that is definitely a major difference in the rollout. But I think it's more because the two individuals were in such different phases of their lives and maturity. Um, I don't think it's any fault of anybody. Also, in personality, Megan is probably a little bit more comfortable out there in the open than Kate is and was. This is an actor. She was comfortable putting on different characters and going out there and speaking in public. Um, Kate hadn't had that. She was a private citizen, and then she was Prince William's girlfriend, then fiance, then wife. So it's about personality styles. Kate really isn't that person who is naturally a public speaker and naturally can, you know, recite all kinds of dialogue. Um, when you think about, you know, the scripts that Megan would have had to memorize to be on her show and to be an actor. So I think the rollout was designed and engineered um, specifically to the personality traits of both women. Okay. And one thing we can't figure out is where Megan and Harry went on their honeymoon. Do you have any intel? <laughs> Help us crack this case, please. There's been no confirmation and there have been like obviously a million different stories. All I can tell you is my sources said that it was somewhere in Africa. Okay. Okay. We don't have sources, but we agree with you on that. <laughs> our sources are your sources. Yeah, exactly. So our, our source is you. Um, I have another question, too, in the gossipy realm. Um, what do you think they're going to do about Thomas Markle? What should they do, and what do you think they're going to do? Oh, that's a really good question. If it were me and I was running the press and communications office for them, I would keep on doing the same, which is nothing. Thank you so much, Lainey. This was so amazing. I'm probably going to go... Look at your blog right after. Yes, she needs to. Do she needs to time. calm down. Really, <laughs> Thank you guys. this is my starstruck moment. Yes, exactly. Thank you Thank for being you. here. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. So I'm gonna go. Need to like lie down for a little while to just like deal with the fact that I just got to talk to Lini, who I worship. Lisa, you cannot lie down because we're not done yet. We have <laughs> Craig Brown, the author of 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret, which is a book that has just come out this week. Um, it is a fascinating biography of one of the most interesting people of the 20th century, in my humble opinion. Um, you know, Princess Margaret, we know, has so many famous stories about her love affairs with, of course, Peter Townsend and Anthony Armstrong Jones, but also maybe Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, etc. Everybody. Um, so, of course, we had to pick up the book as soon as it came out. Some things that we loved from the book, uh, just from the very get-go, he tells his own story of meeting Queen Elizabeth. And uh, he was chatting with her and thinking that she was so interested in what he was saying just because she's so great at 
having small talk with people, but he didn't realize that when the queen is done talking to you, she slowly takes steps back. And then he later learned that like through the course of their conversation, she was just very (laughs) slowly backing away. And so everyone else in the room knew that she wanted to end this conversation. And yet Craig just continued on. One of my favorite aspects of the book, which, you know, the concept of the book is that it's actually just glimpses of her. It's 99 anecdotes or aspects of Princess Margaret. So um, I just love, for example, learning that Pablo Picasso had a gigantic crush on her. Um, How could he not? How could he not, even though he was way older than her in a very creepy way yeah like almost triple her age but you know he of course was seduced by her so there's a very funny not actually not literally seduced (laughs) he was seduced by photos of her craig even writes about he writes sort of a fanfic aspect of maybe they what if they slept together pablo picasso and princess margaret an interesting thought an interesting thought so without further ado please welcome craig brown Thank you for your time today. It's all right. <laughs> and thank you for this book. I, my first question, of course, is why did you want to write a book about Princess Margaret? You've never written a book quite like this before. Um, why did she motivate you to embark on this project? Um, well, there was a variety of reasons. One, um, I thought even when she uh, died, um, people had rather forgotten about her. Uh, which is strange, given that she's the younger daughter, a uh, younger sister of the Queen, um, and she'd rather faded. And so her funeral was a kind of anticlimax in a way. Um, and so I was quite keen to sort of uh, uh, resurrect her in that way. I was interested also in writing a book about someone whose life didn't go according to plan. I think there are too many books or non-fiction books about people whose whose lives um, go according to plan and run in nice straight uphill line uh, and hers didn't there are many more like uh, her her life in in fiction like uh, Anna Karenin and Hedda Gabler and people like that but not in non-fiction so I was interested in to do that and the third reason I think is because uh, I just noticed that in her kind of heyday in the 60s and half the 70s Everyone seemed to have met her. In all, I've got hundreds of diaries and memoirs in my library, and in all of them, you can see her name in the back. And so she met almost as many people as the Queen, who has probably met more people than anyone else in history, given that she's lived into her 90s and has been uh, being presented to people uh, since about the age of five. Um, but unlike the Queen, who rather specialises in, in not being remembered or having nothing, saying nothing memorable, um, Princess Margaret always said memorable things, often rude things. And so people always uh, include her in their diaries and their memoirs because they, they can't get her out of their heads. Yes. One thing I really liked is how you described the ways that she was different from the Queen and how the Queen's job is to not really talk just to meet people and uh, make small talk. And then, as you said, take steps back when she's finished talking with you. And sometimes people don't really notice. But then you said with Margaret, um, she had to show she was royal from, you know, acting royal, being uh, extravagant, uh, saying rude things. I thought that was a really interesting dichotomy between the two. Yes. And and it was very, I I, uh, quote their their old uh, nanny who who, uh, wrote a book about them uh, when Margaret was still about 15. And and it was all about their childhood. And from an early age, 
uh, Margaret was the kind of more artistic one. She was more mischievous. Uh, she was kind of more fun to be around. Certainly their father said, uh, said that she was the sort of fun one. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, Queen Elizabeth, her older sister, was always the dutiful one, always almost kind of OCD, wanting to get everything in the right order, not wanting to put a foot out of line, uh, not wanting to upset anyone. And so there was a very... Um, from a very early age, it was a very big difference between the two of them. Yes, I have to say my favorite quote in the book, which I underlined when I came across it, um, you quote the the book that their governess uh, wrote, and her nickname was Crawfee because her last name was Crawford. And you quote uh, Queen Elizabeth as at age five or so turning to Crawfee and saying, I really don't know what we're going to do about Margaret Crawfee. <laughs> <which laughs> that's, that's one of the Queen's most memorable statements of her life. You can remember yes. that. Um, and of course, it was rather prophetic. You know, what should we do? It's like, um, what are we going to do about Maria or something? People, um, right. uh, she never really fitted in. Why do you think overall people, the you know the the Brits, but also the world, were so captivated by her? Do you think it all began with the Peter Townsend story, or was it her beauty, or you know why was she always a figure of interest aside from the fact that she was born royal? I think I think she was kind of um, sexy uh, um, in those days, and uh, and she was sort of sexier than um, the Queen, who 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 certainly had, whose job wasn't to be sexy, and in a way, right, right. It's a bit more like <laughs> you could almost compare to sort of Meghan Markle and. Um, Kate, that, that mm -hmm. Meghan Markle was is allowed to be the sexy one because she's the sort of uh, the junior one, and she was she was much more up for having fun, and she because um, the Queen married quite uh, young, and so for a long time um, Margaret was just with her mother and rattling around in this great um, uh, sort of palace, Clarence House, uh, and she had one floor and her mother had the other, and she would have long late night parties she'd always go out to the theater she'd drink too much she'd have these uh, which i describe in the book these uh these mornings where she just you know she'd i can't quite remember the time frame but she'd sort of wake up at 10 30 have a sick <laughs> you know someone would come and draw her curtains for her and she'd have a bath and she'd uh read and um have a her first vodka in bed and you know eventually would come <laughs> down for a drink <laughs> And so she was always sort of destined to have this kind of rather loose lifestyle uh, and unregal. But the trouble with her, I think, was that she wasn't, it would have been all right if she had wanted, if she was just pursuing a Hollywood uh, lifestyle and she only had to be a Hollywood star. But she also wanted to be royal. She was very, much more so than the Queen. She was very anxious that people treated her uh, as a royal and, um, and deferred to her. And so she tried to combine these things of, of a kind of outrageous uh, or semi-outrageous uh, lifestyle, uh, kind of drinking too much and that kind of thing, with wanting everyone to bow and curtsy to her. And I think that was she never quite sorted that out. Yes. I want to go back just a bit because I was really interested by the format of this book. So I think when most people think of a biography, they imagine, you know, a linear narrative for 500 pages that's very heavy and yeah. stiff. Um, but the title is 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. And instead, we have 99 
anecdotes almost or um, topics that you chose yeah. to discuss. So how did you come up with that uh, with that format? Why did you decide to do it that way? You two have probably read a lot of royal biographies. And, and if you have, you're probably <laughs> like me. You found a lot of them very, very, very boring. Uh, I mean, there was one, the official, the authorized ones are the most boring. There was one authorized biography of the Queen Mother, which is about a thousand pages. Uh, and you got... And you got everything she wore on, you know, tour of Canada in 1953, all that kind of thing. Uh, every word she'd ever spoken. And I just wanted to do a biography which just had the interesting bits in. And I think that's a kind of worthwhile. Uh, uh, it, it saves time for the reader and, and in, in some ways for the writer. That's so true. And so what is your favorite uh, Princess Margaret anecdote from this book? Um, I, <laughs> I keep. My favorite's always the, the, the most recent um, one I've heard. Uh, and of course, the most recent one I've heard is never one that's in the book, because I finished the book 18 months ago. But people keep telling me stories about um, her cigarettes. She was, um, she was, well, properly addicted to cigarettes. Um, but she made, uh, I spoke um, recently with Helena Bonham Carter, who is the actress who's, who's taking over the role in The Crown. Uh, and she said she was going to make um, a lot of uh, of her cigarettes and her cigarette holder. I think she's more sympathetic towards her than uh, I am. But I think that's quite right. She she used it both as a kind of shield and as a weapon, her cigarette holder. Uh, and so we, we talked a bit about that. And I, so I think the most recent one I've heard about her and cigarettes is a man, a professor, uh, I think he was economics, wrote to me from London University saying when he'd been a student, um, he'd, he'd seen her getting out a cigarette and he'd gone forward with a, um, uh, with a match to light it and held the match by the cigarette, but she hadn't inhaled, so she couldn't, so the cigarette wouldn't light. And eventually a, um, one of her sort of stooges came up, brushed the poor student out of the way and uh, got out his lighter and lit the cigarette with a lighter and says, uh, Ma'am never uh, lights her cigarettes off of a match. I mean, so, <laughs> so, and that rather can, it sort of shows a lot about her because it shows that she was um, wanted to be regal, so she would only accept a, uh, a light from a, a, a proper lighter, uh, but also that she was extremely rude and that this poor man trying to light her um, cigarette with a match uh, was rebuffed, and probably, <laughs> probably traumatized for the rest of his life. Probably. I, I also enjoyed in the book at one point she ashes in a man's hand, <laughs> like at yes. dinner. This is a, uh, a very famous uh, journalist in uh, England called Keith Waterhouse, who went on to write a book called Billy Lie, which you might have heard of. Um, but uh, during the time in the 1950s, when she, had, uh, her, she hadn't been allowed to marry uh, Peter Townsend, he'd really stuck up for her. And then about 30 years later, yeah, he was um, he was at the magazine lunch for her, and uh, and she, he saw that she wanted to uh, put her ash in an ashtray. So he he leant across her to get an ashtray, and she just put the ash in his hand. <laughs> he said it was lucky he, she didn't want to stub it out. <laughs> so, so there are you could have a separate book of uh, Princess Margaret and cigarettes. Cigarettes, I think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you mentioned The Crown, so of course we want to know: uh, Have you watched uh, these first seasons of The Crown, and what did you think of um, the depiction of Princess Margaret there? Well, I thought the uh, the actress was brilliant, as the as was the actor uh, the actress who did the um, the 
queen, uh, and she got her right. I thought I had. I, I think the danger with the crown is that it's so well done, so well acted, so well produced, so well written that people take it as a documentary. And I, certainly, they have in England, where the, presumably people know the royal family better than they do in America. And so, I think that is a danger because in a lot of it is either an exaggeration or made up. However, with um, Princess Margaret, I think because she was such a colourful character, um, her bits are, are largely true, just because it would be hard to exaggerate, especially how, how um, bohemian her lifestyle was when she originally was kind of courting Lord Snowden. And, you know, the fact that, um, I can't remember how long, but, you know, a few weeks after they went down the aisle together, his first baby was born by his friend's wife. I mean, that's an amazing. <laughs> that had been known at the time. It would have been, uh, you know, it would be so scandalous. Um, and and so I think I so I think the crown is is pretty good in regards to uh, Margaret. I, I mean, it, ha it has silly exaggerations in the in the second series. They show the queen uh, during I think the engagement ball is shown um, photographs of all. Snowden's girlfriends and that kind of well, of course, she wouldn't be showing photographs, but I suppose they wanted to make it visual that kind of also I think they get it wrong wrong um, There's an essential thing which they get wrong Which is, is that they they try and make out that Margaret was very catty towards the Queen and kind of jealous of the Queen And I think that's that's simply not uh, right that um, Princess Margaret was always uh, very in awe of the Queen uh, and always, though she didn't always do the right thing, she always wanted to do the right thing and was uh, scandalized by people like um, Princess Diana and uh, the Duchess of York when they didn't do the right thing. I have a, um, a story in my book, which I think is, is very um, fascinating. A, a friend of mine, Andrew Wilson, who's a, a, a novelist and a biographer, found himself sitting next to Princess Margaret at a dinner and rather for want of anything better to say, he said to her, oh, uh, uh, ma'am, a lot of uh, people in England dream about the Queen. Uh, do you ever dream about the Queen? So do you ever dream about your sister? Uh, and she replied, really fascinating reply. She said she had this um, recurrent nightmare where she'd done something so terribly wrong and so um, detrimental to the monarchy uh, but she never knew what it was. But she'd wake up in a kind of cold sweat, worrying about it still, even though she knew it was a dream. And the only way that she could uh, set her mind straight for the rest of the day would be to actually ring up uh, her sister. And the minute she heard her voice, it was such a recurrent dream that the Queen always knew why she was ringing. Uh, and so the Queen would calm her down and then life would go on as normal. But that showed... Um, much more her her real relationship with her sister. She really didn't want to let her down and held her in in uh, very high regard. And you don't get that on the crown. I suppose they thought it was more dramatic to have her always bitching about the queen. Yes, <laughs> that's a that's a very sweet story, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it is sweet. I mean, uh, the the book isn't entirely. Uh, I mean, you know, she was she was a sort of difficult character, but she had um, uh, touching sides to her. And I think one of the reasons, in, especially in later life, that she was difficult is that she didn't want to be pitied. I think she had a real fear of being pitied because everyone, first people pitied her um, because of not being able to marry Peter Townsend. Then they pitied her because of uh, 
had divorced, then they quitted her because of Roddy Llewellyn and uh, he, Roddy Llewellyn then married someone. Uh, and then they pitied her because she uh, she was ill uh, and she hated being pitied. And therefore she would she would get the boot in first. She would be rude before people could pity her. So on another note, um, if she were alive today, how do you think she would feel to know that Harry was allowed to marry a divorcee? Um, I guess I think she was quite moody. So it would depend what mood she was <laughs> in. <laughs> um, and probably, which probably depended on what time of day, whether she had had her first drink but hadn't had her eighth. Um, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. She, she, she'd probably be um, happy. I think she, she tended to like the people. She liked um, Diana very much at the start and I think um, the Duchess of York. And so I think she, she, she allowed people um, a bit of rope at the beginning. Oh, I thought of one more. You just reminded me. So an, a fun aspect of the book is that you make things up. <laughs> so so there, uh, yeah. some of the glimpses I, yeah. are fan fiction, essentially. So why did you decide to do that? Fan fiction. I don't know like that. Um, <laughs> I, decided, I, um, I hope I make it clear. I mean, maybe some people won't see this day. The bits that are made up are, are clearly made up, and they're made up for humorous purposes. They're not the bits which are factual are factual and kind of properly researched um but i do i mean for instance there's a fascinating real life story that, that um pablo picasso famous painter um was was obsessed by princess margaret and he told this is well attested by um his friend called roland penrose uh who put it in his diaries and notebooks uh, even to the extent that he'd, he'd um designed a wedding dress and this was a kind of fantasy on picasso's part uh, and even clothes for the page boys and that kind of thing. Um, I then take I, in another. So I put that in one chapter, all about Pablo Picasso's obsession, which which hasn't really been written about before. Um, but in the next uh, chapter, I fantasize, and I think it's clearly a fantasy about what it would have been like if um, she she had married Picasso and how that marriage would have gone. I I also have her marrying various other unsuitable people. I also have um, a chapter, if, if she had been the firstborn, well, what kind of queen would she have been? Which is a kind of fascinating thing. And anyone who has a sibling, you think, well, you know, why aren't I like them? Or why aren't they like me? What is it that has made us different? And it's obviously very interesting with the queen and Princess Margaret. And if Princess Margaret had been the firstborn, would she have then taken on the character of the queen? Would she have been the sensible one? And all that kind of thing. So anyway, I give her of her giving a Christmas message, which is something the Queen does every year on television in Britain. And of course, it's, it's rather different from the, uh, the Queen's uh, Christmas message. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This was so wonderful to speak with you. And we, again, love the book. It's so great. Love That's, the book. I hope I didn't rattle on too much. Oh, no, of course not. Perfect. Of course not. Never enough. And of course, we encourage everyone to pick up the book. It's out now in uh, the United States, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. There's so many anecdotes that truly we could spend all day with Craig going through them. We all have our favorites. Marlon Brando pops up, Mick Jagger, <laughs> a lot of mystique. Yeah, Jack Nicholson as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> all, all the major players are there, but she is the biggest one. Um, so thank you so much for your time and thank everyone you. go pick up the book. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
So thank you so much to Craig. Uh, that was amazing. And we highly recommend that everyone goes and picks up his brand new book, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. Again, it's a very chic cover. So it just like looks nice in your bag. Yeah. So you can carry that around now. <laughs> but it's an incredibly entertaining read. So thank you again to Craig. And now, before we adjourn the Royal Pod, we have to go through some highs and lows. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. I think I can guess Lisa's high, which is meeting Lainey. Yeah, it's so weird (laughs) that you knew that. I don't know how anyone would ever get that from this episode. (laughs) Um, You can say another high if you have one. My high is hearing Lainey talk about meeting Megan at... uh, a dinner party because now I just want to go to a dinner party with the two of them. Yes. Um, my high was getting to read Craig's book and then talk to him about it. And also that both of our guests this week gave us such bizarre cigarette stories, you know? Yeah. I, I'm upset still that Kate Middleton smoked or smokes. I guess. Kind of present tense, maybe. Well, my low is I'm worried for her health. Yeah. My low is nicotine addiction. Um, <laughs> my other low is, of course, that these royals are at Balmoral and not hanging out in public so we can talk about them. I wish them the best vacation, but hurry, do hurry back. Yeah, and Harry's in, in Botswana. Yeah, so that's a little glimpse. We, we, we'll take that, but um, I do like the image of Megan somewhere with a sun hat in, in Scotland. I don't know how much sun you're getting there. Um, but yes, rest up so you can you know, come right back in the fall and start hanging out in public, please. So meanwhile, um, I'm not on vacation. You can follow me, Lisa, <laughs> at Lisa Raya and read my writing at The Cut. And you can follow me, Caitlin, at HeyKMenz, H-E-Y-K-M-E-N-Z on Twitter and Instagram and read my writing at CaitlinMenza.com. Follow the show on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast or join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review on Apple. And until next week, God save the pod. God, this episode is just me as a fangirl, isn't it? (laughs) Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.